We'll begin this evening's talk in a kind of unusual way, with a few moments of sitting with your eyes closed, as though visualizing or sensing, as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed and aversion and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow in the quiver that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how? you are. Just who do you think you are, anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama, sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, all of these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, in his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. (coughs) And so we sit maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago. But we sit, we practice with sincerity and with determination. At home, maybe alone, and maybe with your sangha, with your practice community. And now, 
here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or factor of mind that's really the most fundamental underlying factor of our practice. Mindfulness. As we explore together this evening, allow the words that you're hearing to be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So, in support of this, it's helpful to really deeply relax in and through the body. So let's take just a couple of moments now to drop into the body with a bright, easy attention. Relaxing from head to toe. Letting the whole body, heart, and mind relax into a very simple, direct presence. And with an open mind, an open heart, simply hearing. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation, the very conditions we have here on retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness, along with a calm, concentrated mind, are key factors for the mind, the heart, to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of mind necessary for awakening. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors that are necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So, maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say that mindfulness is the chief mother. 
And when it really begins to be established in us, it truly is the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So breaking this word down, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think that for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong, habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but rather remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked this question, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a really good question. It's a very common word these days, uh, thanks to the mindfulness movement, which is a wonderful thing, but also with the mindfulness movement, to some degree, some of the depth, some of the potency of mindfulness is dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning in this case, Absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it should be or could be. The great Indian a teacher, Krishnamurti, said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way It really is, which may appear so clear and simple that we hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close really close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't float or skim along the surface of things. It connects going right into the object, 
And yet at the same time, it's not a sticky, fixed connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. This is the flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'm going to repeat that. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, moving, bodily sensa- various bodily sensations, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to be with. And we give attention to experience that's unpleasant, experience that may be difficult to be with. We open to it all. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, heart, and mind living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose ourself in what is, so that there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. The moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, creating a disconnection from the reality of the way of things, and living in an idea the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living directly in the action. So a bit of a personal story regarding this. Giving birth for me uh, almost 55 years ago now, was my first uh, teaching and practice in mindfulness and insight practice. Although it wasn't called this. The Lamaze training, as it was called, was a training in being fully present, 
awake and aware in this process that was happening in and of itself and that I certainly was involved with. Through the training we were told and during the birthing process itself, I soon discovered that any resistance to the process that was taking place made it extremely uncomfortable. Getting myself out of the way, but at the same time being totally, fully present, engaged, and mindfully aware in the midst of of it was very intense, not so easy, but really quite okay. And very interesting, and truly filled with wonderment. It was a very, very powerful lesson that obviously I've not forgotten. And sometimes mindfulness (coughs) kind of feels like magic. Not the magician's magic that creates illusion and pulls us into this illusion, this delusion. But the great beauty, the magic and the great beauty of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. As a child, one of my great fascinations, one of my great interests was magic tricks. (laughs) For a number of years, this is what I always asked for, for birthday gifts. And I actually became (laughs) uh, adept enough in performing magic that um, I was the magician uh, a few times in our yearly neighborhood fair. In retrospect, I've come to understand that I really wanted to see how it worked. I really wanted to see how the illusion worked. Without mindfulness, we're bound, we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And so we get caught again and again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analio puts it this way in his book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. The element of non-reactive, watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for sati-patana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal 
and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope and maybe even assume that much of our life experience at any given time is pretty permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we often want life to suit our passing fantasies, our expectations, our deepest desires. And so most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish this through external experience by getting this and that or him or her doing this and that going here and there and so we go for we try for sustaining and we also we should say go for try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and thoughts as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. As many of you know, certainly at least some of the time, none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely in order to sense, see, and know our experience directly. It's as though our meditation practice, it's through our meditation practice of mindfulness that this is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we truly, really, truly bring our attention to the present moment. We practice this over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect, right moment than the one we're in, we have then truly and wholly embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening.
Our practice is one of deep intimacy. The deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops and expands and matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware intimately aware of it, whatever it is, in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? This is a basic foundation of all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the breath? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, insight, to arise. To just simply and naturally arise. Which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make that happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here, right now. And, again, it's our greatest protection. Quite a number of years ago now, I was teaching a class, a weekly class, a mindfulness class. And each week people would come back from the lesson and discussion we had the week before with something during the the current week uh, that was connected to what we'd been exploring. And so one evening, one of the women in the class came in and she said, she shared with us something from her experience of the week. She said that morning she'd been watering her garden. And she'd watered her garden many, many, many times before. But she said that morning it was as though it was the first time she'd ever watered her garden. That's how it felt to her. And then she said, after her mind took quite a big leap, she said, how have we survived so long without being mindful? Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. It was a wonderful sharing from her and a big lesson for all of us.
awakening moment. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And one way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas and preconceptions and opinions and judgments and hopes and fears and similar past experiences. So, for instance, an experience that probably each of you have had at some point in your life, you meet someone new, someone you've never ever met or seen before, and you don't see them as they actually are. Maybe you see them in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them, or are attracted to them, or how much you think you don't like them, or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. And so you see this brand new person in relationship to the similar qualities you're thinking about in this other person. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you maybe hope they are. Or what you maybe want from them. Or hope you can get from them. Or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're not experiencing this person that you've just met for the very first time, just simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know someone and found out that they weren't really at all like your imagined ideas about them when you very first met them? Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think. It's immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habituated, habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a very clear, sharp focus to see things as they really, truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's been called beginner's mind. Many years ago now, one of my grandsons, when he was two and a half years old, and was living in Pennsylvania with my son and his mother. Uh, And I went and visited. We took a walk. His mother and he and I took a walk down the hill behind the house that they were living in. And he saw a pine cone on the ground. First time in his whole life he'd ever seen a pine cone. So he picked it up. And he smelled it. He stuck his tongue out and licked it. He put it up to his ear, hearing whatever he heard. Kept turning it every which way, with his little eyes looking carefully. And his mother and I watching this, 
And then uh, we dutifully said, as a good grandma and a good mother, we said, Alex, this is a pine cone. And Alex, being a relatively good little boy, he looked up at us and repeated, pine cone. But then that went the way, and he just continued looking, smelling, hearing, licking, finding out what is this, what really is this. With his very fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or maybe more accurately, relearn to bring into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. I mean, we don't have to lick and smell and taste everything to find out about it, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Beginner's mind. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well, make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains of mindfulness. Four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening, we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it. And of course, there are many uh, varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as each of you well know, one of our primary, per, primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible by a mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, I myself have been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and mind that happens, as well as what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath, the rising and falling in the belly. So just for a moment now, close your eyes if they're not already closed. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the simple sensations of the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly with as little self as possible.
And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control, trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? And very important to notice this without judgment, without self-recrimination, just a clear mindfulness connected to the experience. In a moment of clear seeing, clear knowing, there's often, uh, there often can be a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation very directly as sensation or as movement or maybe as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath. Noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end. And maybe actually noticing the ending, noticing the cessation of an exhalation and then the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may just very simply notice movement of the in and out breath in the belly. Just this. Very simply noticing it. Which helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet, tranquil and peaceful breath. And an overall body-mind calm that's very supportive towards developing a more refined, mindful attention. So the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. And not our sort of ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity. But a closer, more intimate, ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking. The various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and legs, turning, lifting, carrying, and even, of course, bringing mindfulness into the body, of the body in the body, to the experiences of falling asleep in the evening, waking up in the morning, or after a nap. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be known just simply as standing? Sitting as just simply sitting? Walking as just simply walking? without the layer of I 
am, or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once uh, many years ago, the Venerable Sada Upandita asked me in a practice meeting, he said, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking and standing or sitting or any bodily sensations? Well, for just a a brief moment, I was uh, caught by his question, which in retrospect I realized was uh, kind of a test of my practice at the time. But very quickly during that practice meeting, there was a very spontaneous reflection and then a response to Saida Upandita. I said, no, no, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm really directly connected with and mindful of walking or of whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So, a good observation. And a question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of attention, where the energy of volition begins, where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separate, isolated I or me, we will eventually, or maybe quite quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience, or which may often also be clearly or subtly related to past experience. As mindful awareness of the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler cause of suffering that begins to take hold, begins to be known, which can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging 
to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body. Quite a few years ago now, a very um, deeply dedicated student here in Taos named Roy, uh, who was a deeply, very deeply dedicated student right up into his dying moment. He died of AIDS-related complications. And sitting with him in the hospital one afternoon as he was lying in his bed here in Taos, and there wasn't much of his body left at that point. He was lying on his back, and he stretched his arm up overhead towards the ceiling, and he slowly turned it one way and the other way, looking at it very, very carefully and mindfully with great interest. And this went on for some moments. And then he said in a very cool and yet odd way, all he said was, wow. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions, just like, for instance, as does the arising of anger, or the sensation of coolness on the skin, or the liking or the disliking of some experience, or Roy's body being as thin and light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth. The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. All 32 of them, as it's taught in the classical Buddhist text, hair, skin, muscles, bones, all the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you certainly most likely notice them as they make themselves known. Such as maybe the bones, the muscles, tendons, intestine, bladder, uh, heart, lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc., The classical 32 parts of the body practice isn't one that is very often taught here in the West, though it can be quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body as being a solid entity and it being mine 
being me. And I have no doubt at all that you have noticed many, many parts of your body even during these first few days of retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? How identified are you, for instance, with the hair on your head? Or the lack of it? Or its color? Or the hair on your body? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine? Or the digestive process therein? Or to a moment or many moments of experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body? How do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindfulness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non self-identified kind of attention. Just the body and the body. Without the layers of ideas, interpretations, and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful aspect of practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual idea of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, This is how a meditator, this is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So now, just consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? I think for most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So, considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm gender fluid. I'm transgender. I'm thin or fat or not too thin and not too fat. I'm tall or short or of average height. I'm good looking, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I'm dark skinned. I'm light skinned. I have good skin. I have bad skin. My nose is too large. My nose is large. My nose is small. I have a cute nose. 
I'm wrinkled and old and weak. I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, within days, or within just moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. So, a very simple personal example. In the last few years, I've shrunk. (laughs) I've shrunk more than two inches. And I've always identified myself as an average height person. Now I'm a short person and getting shorter and shorter and shorter. (laughs) Shrinking. Who am I in that way? I don't know anymore. Another important and potentially profoundly insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies, in essence, are no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form, nothing more, nothing less. So potentially a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, It can be a window, it can be an opening for us to the direct experience and discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of rupa, form. One aspect of the reality of how it really is. How, what, how or what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, or wind, through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. Sensations that we experience all of the time when we're sitting, when we're standing, lying down, and when the body is moving. So this evening I'd like to just mention these sensations, each of which directly corresponds to the specific or particular characteristic of each of the four great elements. 
and I'm sure that you will recognize many of these sensations from your own experience of being in a body. The sensorial characteristics to begin with of the earth element. The sensorial characteristics are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The sensorial characteristics of the fire element. Heat or warmth, cold or coolness. The sensorial characteristics of the air or the wind element. Supporting, pushing. The sensorial characteristics of the water element. Flowing, cohesion. All and each of these bodily sensations are very readily available for us to experience and be mindful of in any moment. As I said, they're occurring all the time. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal characteristics? This body in its elemental nature. Essentially no different in that respect from any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is that there are many, many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds, maybe other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. Not too many flowers yet, but some. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas, are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years, and at times quite purposefully, observe the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that that things do as and after they die. And once when I was in a retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, maybe good fortune only in the world of Dhamma practice, but it was great good fortune in that respect, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. And every day for a month, I walked down to that body, and I sat with it for a little while every day, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this instance was actually happening Uh, very quickly 
because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was a quite a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until some years ago was the abbot of the Amravati Monastery in England and who is the most senior monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand. And he asked that he be able to spend uh, part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, though he said they were quite reluctant to do that, but they did let him go in. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included very much his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. I think he actually used the words fully assaulted. He said that the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run out the door. But he stayed mindfully present, and little by little it became tolerable. Just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart. As he took in the various stages of decay all around him. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which he found quite puzzling at first. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could explode at any minute. Which he said he very much hoped it would not do. It didn't. (laughs) He said that when he went back out onto the street, He saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. This isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably first and foremost, our own form, and also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that we're close to and care about, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are maybe amusing and interesting to us. Or simply the taken-for-granted familiar forms. I think that what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change. 
won't die. Which, if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting, see it really closely, mindfully, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first foundation of mindfulness, this first domain of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And what we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought and feelings and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body, to receive them, and to come to know them. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance which is one aspect of metta. An act of unconditional acceptance with grace and at least some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or not resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments, we feel and intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very ordinary examples that we relate to our life here in retreat, and of course, also outside of a formal retreat setting. So we might wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. So in that sense, a holy act. We open the door, clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist is doing. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold, the cold outside. Or maybe react and turning away from the intense heat and light of the sun. We catch ourselves and consciously with mindful awareness rise up to meet these experiences. The choice to be mindfully aware is often to some degree of an act of courage. Someone once said, and it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, 
the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. And though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life and know-how. And all of a sudden we find that we really need no training to be fully alive, fully present, that we only lacked the determination to feel our aliveness. The body is an excellent meditation subject. It will always tell the truth. So for instance, if you break a leg or if we're physically ill in some way, the body's not going to give off a pleasant feeling. And it doesn't have the capacity to get lost in the past or project into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, a simple mindful presence in the body can often be a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling just too overpowering to be with. And I think we all experience, at least uh, to some degree, that we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected in our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. When the framework of our, with the framework of our practice, we each find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge for each of us in relationship to this conditioning. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and the simple universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. And from the Buddha. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced, practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered on the body. So I'd like to close the talk this evening with a teaching from the Madhimanakaya from the Buddha. It's called A Single Excellent Night.
let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes for the past has been left behind and the future has not yet been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has a single, excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. May all of the wholesome energies and fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere, which of course includes ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.